Hey, good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. Hopefully, some of you are joining us live on YouTube. If you're not catching us live, we're recording this a Tuesday morning. Last night, we got our first two teams on to the Final Four. Houston and Baylor end up moving on. Houston, the team that eliminated Syracuse, I'm certainly going to talk about that today. Going to talk about the games for tonight. A couple good ones that I think could be very interesting. So we'll talk about Sweet 16. Got a few thoughts on the baseball opening up in a couple days. The Bills Stadium has a new name, Highmark Stadium. Well, I'll explain why I don't think that's a good idea. It's not a bad name. It rolls off your tongue nicely, Highmark Stadium. You just think it's a stadium built on a hill or something. Of course, in Buffalo, there aren't hills. But I'll explain why I don't think that's a very good partner for the Pakulas to be doing business with right now for stadium rights. Then I will also talk about why Tim Peel, the NHL referee, was fired after being caught on a hot mic, shouldn't have been fired. And the NHL should take a lot of blame in this. But a lot to get to. Let's start with Syracuse. Their Sweet 16 run ended Saturday night at the hands of the University of Houston. And as I just said, Houston is a Final Four team. Houston's a team that makes their bones on defense and rebounding. And it was completely evident on Saturday night that that team was a much better defensive team, much better rebounding team, much more athletic, and much better prepared for that moment than was Syracuse. Syracuse, let me give credit to what Syracuse did this year. In a season like no other, with a couple COVID pauses mixed in, both Buddy Beheim and Joe Girard had COVID and it affected their play. Girard especially, he's an asthmatic kid, has asthma, I should say. And because of that, hit him very hard. But you saw him play better towards the end of the year as he got healthier. Buddy, likewise, the shot was off midseason after the COVID pause, got much better and had a great run through the first two games of the NCAA tournament. And actually, the two games of the ACC tournament, he played very well as well. So when you look at what Syracuse went through without Barama Sidibe in the middle and, and trying to get by with Marek Dolajai as the five, and he's not a five. Marek's a, a good player, but he's not a five. And playing him there takes away from your team. You're already rebounded, challenged. You put a smaller center in there, you're going to have more problems. You look at what Alan Griffin had in the up and down season, yet the Orange won 18 of 28 games, 18 and 10 they were on this season. That's pretty strong in, in a season like no other. They had some good wins. They had a couple. The Pittsburgh loss stands out as a bad loss. But this is a team, once again, that was on the bubble left for dead by people like myself. I didn't think they were going to get in before they got on a run. And when they did get on a run, they ended up making the tournament and winning a couple games. Overall, it was a good year for Syracuse. Saturday night, though, a, a young man by the name of DeJohn Giroux, we, we didn't know much about this Houston team other than you read about them and you find out this team loves to play defense. Calvin Sampson is going to get them to get after you. 
and they love to rebound, and the rebounding was big. The rebounding difference, 40 to 31 offensive rebounds, Houston had 11. Syracuse did a better job late in the first half when Jesse Edwards went in at center. But the field goal percentage for Syracuse is the telling stat. Look, this is a game that the Orange lost 62 to 46. Defensively, the Orange did their job. If you remember early on in the season, there were games where Syracuse was giving up 90 points because they didn't play any defense. The defense got better as the season went along. Not so coincidentally, Alan Griffin saw less time on the court, and a lot of it was attributed to his lack of defensive play. Robert Braswell got more minutes. But on Saturday, the defense did their job. And again, Griffin didn't get the minutes. He got 13. And I I thought this was a game when you have a team that plays strong man-to-man, the players I thought Syracuse needed to do well were were guys like Alan Griffin and Kadari Richmond, guys who could beat their man off the dribble. You you pressure a, a good take-it-to-the-rim guy, he's going to beat you more often than not because it's just what happens in basketball. You play tight defense, you have a better chance of getting by that guy if you're adept at dribbling the basketball and finishing. Kadari Richmond Alan Griffin are adept at that. Griffin, though, started out, Bad shot early, was pulled out of the game less than a minute to go. I knew right then his his night was over. You pull a guy out 30 seconds into a game, you can't expect him to come back and contribute. Robert Braswell didn't have a good night off the bench. He was 0 for 3, didn't score in his 15 minutes. The Orange didn't have anybody who could get things going. Buddy Beheim was a story going into this game. Jerron Giroux was going to take him out of the game, and he did. Buddy's night was horrible. He had 12.6 boards. He was 3 of 13 from the floor, 1 of 9 from 3. Didn't get comfortable looks, and by the time he did, his night was over, and he wasn't in rhythm, so those shots didn't go either. Quincy Garrier didn't have a strong night. One, he was a guy who he had 8 points and 5 rebounds in the game and was tentative around the rim. He is not used to finishing smoothly off the bounce. He can finish. He's just that part of his game hasn't developed yet. It will, and I think he'll be a very good player when it does. But at this point, it's not there. Marek didn't shoot the ball well, one for six, and was very tentative. He had looks that you look at and think, shoot that back. You gotta, you gotta make that shot. Did not. So the Orange shoot twenty eight percent from the floor. They only made fourteen field goals in this game. Joe Girard actually hit a couple shots, but got yanked out because, again, Kadari Richmond. This is a game that sets up for him. I thought going for a three guard offense in this one with Kadari at the point, JG three at the two, and Buddy at the three may have done the Orange a favor. The rebounding would have suffered, sure, although Kadari's a very good rebounding guard. But I thought somebody like Gerard, who's got very little conscience when it comes to offense, would have been an asset. And he actually made a couple shots in the game that you looked at and thought, all right, you know, maybe he can get things going. The Orange needed somebody to pick it up because Buddy wasn't going to get his. Houston their game plan was take Buddy Beheim out of this, rebound the basketball, and we'll win the game. And they did. 
and, and it's a simple game plan, but it was effective. And again, Calvin Sampson, a guy who got fired at Indiana for some violations, which you look in hindsight, he was calling people in, in, in a time when you're not supposed to call people. Those were his infractions. He wasn't paying players as far as I know. Will Wade, the cheater at LSU, paid players. He's still coaching. So, you know, it's good to see Calvin Sampson get a little bit of uh, payback, if you will. He's on to the Final Four now after their win last night. And you look at what the Orange in, in Houston, this game changed in the last two and a half minutes of the first half. Jesse Edwards had come in and changed the game defensively. He had created some opportunities for the Orange to get some turnovers and get back into the game, and the game was tied at 20. He gets taken out with just over two and a half minutes to go. The rest of the first half, Houston goes on a 10-0 run. They go to half, 30-20. to That, to me, was the game right there. Jim Beheim was not happy being questioned about that after the game. Once again, snarky comment about a typical Central New York reporter who questions him. And, you know, that act has gotten old with Jim Beheim. He can't help himself. His arrogance and intolerance to be questioned by the local media, not by the national media. He kisses their ass left and right. But by the local media, it's really gotten tired. And I I just, I, I can't understand this guy because it's a legitimate question. You get put a guy in. He plays very well. Jesse Edwards in 19 minutes had five points and six boards and several good defensive plays as well, a couple blocks in there. You put him in there, changes the game, he comes out, they go on a 10-0 run. That's a legitimate question. And Bayheim can't handle it because he knows it's a legitimate question. Now, he said in hindsight uh, in a radio show yesterday, Brett X radio show in Syracuse, that Edwards was tired and that's why he took him out. Okay, I understand that. But at the same time, you can't look at that in the moment as a bad question. You put a guy in, you go on a run, tie it up, you take him out, they go on a 10-0 run, end the game, at halftime. You can't tell me that's not a good question. And yet Jim Beheim acts like himself, and he can't help himself. He should be unquestioned because he's been doing this for 44 years and he knows more basketball than anybody, and he does. But you know what? Even the best coaches make decisions that don't work out. And Beheim made a decision Saturday night to take Jesse Edwards out of the game with two and a half minutes. He could have put him back in with a minute to go. He, he could have stemmed the tide there, give him a blow, get him back in there, finish the half with him on the court. Maybe it's a 6-0 run. And, and it's a different game coming out of the half, coming out of halftime. But that wasn't the case. Look, Syracuse has got to score. They got to figure out ways to score. They, it's been years now since they've had solid enough point guard play to create open shots for other players. They simply don't do it. Joe Girard's not a natural point guard. He's not going to do that. Quincy, I'm sorry, Kadari Richmond may become that guy. Maybe. He could beat people off the dribble, and he had a couple nice looks on Saturday night. He's a guy who I think gives the Syracuse Orange future the best chance of having somebody who could drive and dish. 
But this is a team that's got to figure out a better offensive strategy to get guys open shots. You can't just simply have one good defensive player take away your best player, and all of a sudden your offense stalls. You know, this is this is a problem. So you look at the Orange now going forward, and this is a year like no other. The NCAA is allowing transfers to move to another school without sitting out a year. There are almost a 1,000 kids in the transfer portal as we speak, and that's a huge number. So I thought I'd go through the Orange team and, and see who I think will be gone. We already know this. Two players have already announced they will transfer. Jean Balajac, the seldom-used big man, is a redshirt freshman, so they'll have three years' eligibility left at, at another school. Good teammate, potentially a good player, didn't get an opportunity, didn't take advantage of the opportunities he was given, and now he's going to move on. Robert Braswell, who was key to this run, dealt with a lot of things at Syracuse. Injuries, not getting playing time. He now is going to move elsewhere. He was a key member of this team down the stretch, but he's going to go too. So we've already got two players in the portal. Quincy Garrier, who will be an NBA player at some point, is going to explore the NBA process. Now, if he signs with an agent, he's gone. If he doesn't sign with an agent, there's a chance he could come back. So we'll see how that works out for Quincy. He's a guy that I can see the NBA loving because he's got so many raw skills and he's got an NBA body. So as a second-round pick, I think the chances are that Quincy Garrier ends up in the NBA. Buddy Beheim will almost undoubtedly stay. His father won't let him transfer out of there. I don't think he wants to transfer out of there. I think he will stay. Alan Griffin who transferred in for this year, I think he'll transfer out after this year. He couldn't be happy with the way things played out down the stretch. He was getting about 10 minutes of game time per game over the last month of the season, getting yanked every time he did something wrong. I can't think the way this played out is going to be something that Alan Griffin is going to want to deal with. So I, I would expect him to transfer. Marek Dolezal is likely to move on. He's a senior. He could come back for another year because of the COVID rules. But I would expect him to go to Europe and make some money, play in pro ball. He will play a long time in Europe and make money over there. He's a good player. He's not an NBA player, in my opinion. But he can make a lot of money in Europe playing basketball. Brahma Sidibe, who was injured this year, missed the year. I would expect him to go somewhere else, play for a year, and then move on with his career. I think Jesse Edwards will stay. I think the taste he got at the end of the year lets him know where he is in thoughts. And, and I think next year, looking ahead, the starting five will be Jesse Edwards. I think he's going to start at center next year for Syracuse. And he's a guy with some offensive abilities. He's got good feet. He's got a good release. He's got the potential to be the best center offensively that the Orange have had since Rick Jackson. So I think he stays as well. Woody Newton, freshman who saw some time earlier this year, I think he's as good as gone. Now, there's no real reason there other than he didn't get playing time. But in today's day and age, if you're a young man who goes somewhere and doesn't get playing time, 
have an opportunity to leave, generally they do. And I would expect Woody Newton to do that. Frank Ansel is a big man that we don't know much about. Saw some time early on in the season. He's a different big man than most of the Orange guys because he's got a little bit of bulk to him. And I think he's somebody who the, the coaching staff will convince to stay because I think they think he has some potential. Now, that leaves two players, Kadari Richmond and Joe Girard III. And these guys are interesting to me because I think one's decision could affect the other's decision. Let's start with Kadari Richmond. This coaching staff loves his potential. That's obvious. This is a guy who's got a very good handle, can beat people off the dribble. He's got a developing jump shot. He's a very good rebounder, excellent at the top of the zone with his length. He can block a shot here and there. There's a lot to like about Kadari Richmond, and this coaching staff played him quite a bit as a freshman. I think they will try to convince him to stay. I think he's going to look at things through his own prism and wonder how much playing time do I get. And I think basically the same same thing that I just said about Katari Richmond can be said about Joe Girard III. I think the frustration with the quick hook that he gets from Beheim is going to be something that's going to factor in. I think the fact that he could go elsewhere and not worry about a quick hook, play 40 minutes a game, put up as many shots as he wants, I think that's got to be enticing. And the fact that Kadari Richmond stays, he knows he's in the same situation next year that he was in this year. That's not an enviable situation. So I think Gerard and Richmond, either they both stay, and they're both going to stay because next year's team will look different with a three-guard lineup, Buddy Beheim essentially playing the three, or one of them goes and one of them stays. So I think it's the sales job that the coaching staff is going to have to do. So if you look at next year, if they go three-guard lineup, which I think is their best bet, Jari Richmond plays the point. Joe Gerard plays the two. Move Buddy Beheim to the three. Now, you've sacrificed a little bit of something on your rebounding because Buddy's not a great rebounder. But at 6'7", I think he's big enough to play the wing, and I th- certainly think he could benefit from playing the three in a, in a three-guard set because I think the ball could move better with three guards on the floor. Benny Williams is a freshman who's coming in who's a very good recruit, might be the best recruit the Orange have had in a decade. He's coming in. He'll likely start right away. This kid potentially could be a one-and-done kid. So Benny Williams plays the four, and Jesse Edwards in the middle at the five. That's assuming Quincy Gurrier ends up in the NBA, Ellen Griffin transfers. That could be the starting five, and I think Syracuse will be active recruiting in the transfer portal as well so more of the same for next year this isn't going to be a team next year that's going to win the ACC and be a top 10 team no they're going to be a 20 win team they're going to live just inside the bubble if you will get some things done and you know we'll see where it goes from here again Jim Beheim's clock is winding down I don't know how many more years he'll be there I've always said when Buddy Beheim is done, Jim Beheim is as well. So it could be next year. That could be the final year. 
and we'll see where it goes from there. But this is a team that's doing things the same way every year. So expect another year next year of limited offense, some nights good defense, and the fact is going to be they're a bubble team that could hurt some teams in in the tournament as well. But the days of getting three or four blue chippers, five-star players on the court at once and running out to a 28-3 and regular season record, one or two seed, those days with Jim Beheim are over. I'm sorry to say. He just doesn't recruit that way anymore. And because of that, you're not going to be that team. So we'll see where it goes from here. But it was a good, solid season. And if you're happy with good, solid seasons, then Syracuse is doing what you expect. If you long for the late 80s, like I do, they're underachieving. We'll see where it goes from here. The Sweet 16 had an interesting breakdown. And, and you know, this tournament had a lot of upsets early. And we all love the upsets. We all love the Cinderella. What makes a tournament great is when you have upsets early and chalk late. In other words, you get a lot of the upsets, but the one and two seeds are the teams that are going to play for the title in the Elite Eight and the Final Four. And that's what this tournament has basically delivered. You had three number ones and a number two still alive going into the Elite Eight. And after last night, we have our first two teams set for the Final Four, Houston, a two-seed, and Baylor, a one-seed. And i got to say this about Baylor. That's a good team. That's a really good team. All year long, there have been two teams, in my opinion, that are above everyone else, and it's Baylor and Gonzaga. And I personally think the championship game, if it's Gonzaga, Baylor, may be a classic because these two teams just know how to win. But when you look at the the breakdown of the Elite Eight, three Pac-12 schools in the Elite Eight, Oregon State lost last night to Houston but fought valiantly in that game. They were picked for last in the conference. Their season was over if they don't win the conference tournament, which they did, and then give a battle to a two-seed to almost get to the Final Four, a heck of a season for Oregon State. Mick Cronin, a guy who I don't like to root for at UCLA, gets a playing game against Michigan State. And they were down big in that game, and they come back, win that game. Here they are on the verge of the Final Four. they got to get by Michigan tonight, which will be no easy task. Michigan's playing great basketball. But the job that they've done is really impressive. And then USC. USC has a kid who I think might be the best player left in the tournament, and Evan Mobley, he's seven-footer. He moves like Kevin Durant, but he can't shoot like Kevin Durant. Then again, most people can't. He's really, I would say Chris Bosh is the comparison for this kid, but a heck of a player. Really good player. Plays excellent defense, can block shots with his length and athleticism. He can rebound. He can finish very well. He's a very good passer. can handle it. Talk about a bright future. Evan Mobley's got a huge, huge future in front of him. And then, of course, tonight, the other game is Gonzaga against Evan Mobley. I mentioned USC, I'm sorry, UCLA, Michigan. 
Gonzaga, USC tonight. So you've got a freshman-led athletic team in USC against a veteran team in Gonzaga who plays so well together. Drew Timmy on the inside is great. I love Suggs, the freshman point guard. I think he's a star waiting to happen. That that Gonzaga team, the way they play, is just fun to watch. They move the ball. They run. They play defense. It's going to be a great game tonight to watch in that one. And then the other one, UCLA and Michigan. I haven't talked much about Michigan. The job Juwan Howard has done there is just tremendous. They've lost arguably their best player. hasn't played in the tournament. Yet this is a team, and I think in large part because of their defense, has gotten out there and gotten after it and really done a great, great job. So you look at the seedings. You know, I've said upsets early, chalk late. We've already got a one and a two who have already made it. Tonight's game, USC's a six going against Gonzaga, a one. And UCLA's an 11 going against Michigan, a one. Now, Michigan and Gonzaga are going to be favored tonight if they both advance. That's three ones and a two in the final four. That's a heck of a final four. Those games are going to be fantastic. You're going to have, if that's the case, Gonzaga-Michigan and, of course, Baylor and Houston. And Right now we know Baylor-Houston's a final four game. I can't wait to watch that game. One team makes a living on defense and rebounding. The other team plays almost as good a defense but is, or as good offensively as any team in the country. You shoot it. Everyone on the floor can shoot the three. Dangerous, dangerous team who can move the ball. Uh, Baylor's fun to watch. Houston's fun to watch in a different way. You look at tonight, USC with the star player, fun to watch. Gonzaga, the way they play, great to watch. Michigan just getting after it defensively. That's bringing back memories of the Fab Five. And, of course, a member of the Fab Five is their coach. So you've got that storyline. And, of course, UCLA, who goes from a play-in game, looking to get all the way there. And, and this is a team, too, that has a ton of history and tradition. No, There aren't any more blue-blood teams than UCLA and for this tournament that didn't have Duke and Kentucky at the start, lost Carolina right away. UCLA is the blue blood that keeps ticking on. So the, this tournament I think has been excellent. Uh, the new, the new scheduling format, having games Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, it, it's not something I love, but at the same time, I don't hate it either. I think this is going to be fun to see how it plays out. And I I just think the games are so good right now. And, and, and again, they might be ugly because of defense. I enjoy that. But the competition is great. So bring on the NCAA tournament. It, it's going to be the finish of it is going to be great. Tonight, great night of basketball. And this weekend with the Final Four, should be fantastic. By the time we get together next week, we will have crowned a champion. I don't know who that will be, but my prediction is it's Baylor-Gonzaga in the championship game, and I will pick Gonzaga to win. Though, after watching Baylor last night, I'm not as confident of that pick as I was before. And I'll be honest, Michigan, 
could beat Gonzaga as well. So if it's Michigan Gonzaga, that, that's going to be a tough one. Great, great matchups in the NCAA tournament. As we talk here, Tuesday morning, sun's out, beautiful day, a little cold. However, we are two days away from the start of the Major League Baseball season. And this is a season that's going to be much different than last year because it's 162 games. There's a lot of good things about that. We get back to normal. You don't worry as much about the short season. Somebody goes into a slump, it ends up ruining their season. This year, you get to play your way out of it. However, there's going to be a lot of caution with pitchers this year because you never want a pitcher, and this is something when pitchers are coming up, as they go through the minors, you never want to go more than 10% more innings a year after in, in the next year. So if a guy pitches 100 innings the first year, you don't want to go more than 110, 115 innings the following year. You just don't want to go from 100 innings to 200 innings. It's been shown that that's a very bad thing for a pitcher's arm. So this year, guys who last year made 12 starts, the best numbers innings pitched were under 100. We're now we're going 162 games, and guys are going to get 30 starts. Guy like Garrett Cole, Jake DeGrom, 210 innings. It's very, very dangerous long-term for the health of these players. And when you consider the contracts, you know, Cole especially, a $300 million 10-year deal, you've got to treat him with kid gloves to an extent. I don't know how that's going to happen. I don't know what the plan is for teams to handle things like that. But I think that's one of the big storylines this year going into it. Last year, there were a lot of pitchers that got hurt and people looked at things that was it the start and the stop? Was it the short season? Was it the late season? What, what happened? Why were there so many injuries? Of course you had guys who got hurt in spring training beforehand, Chris sale, Noah Syndergaard. These guys were out early on and likely to be back by June. So could factor that way as as well. So I think the pitching injuries is going to be a storyline this year to keep an eye on. The Yankees, everyone's favorite team in this area, or so it seems, the most popular team in this area, they're basically running it back offensively. They haven't gone out and added because they're on a budget for the first time in their team's history. They want to stay under that luxury cap. They did sign Corey Kluber. They did acquire Jamison Tyone. They've got Luis Severino coming back from his Tommy John. So I think the rotation should be pretty good. I think the loss of Zach Britton is going to affect that bullpen. I think Britton is a guy who did a lot of things last year. When, if Chapman gets hurt, which he has over the last couple of years, remember, he's getting up there in age. So his health is going to be something to keep an eye on. But with Britain, if Chapman's out, you put Britain as a closer, you don't lose much. Now, Chapman this year has reportedly developed a split finger fastball, third pitch, could be devastating. He's still, in my opinion, one of the best closers in the game. So if you can get the ball to him, I think you're in good shape. I think this Yankee team 
should be in good shape in the East. You look at the American League East, the Jays are going to be very good. This is a team with so much young talent that the more you look at them, not only are they young and talented, they're really ready to, to pop. They've acquired a couple pitchers. and you know, One guy I'm intrigued to see, Steven Matz, a former Matt, who couldn't quite – Steven Matz is, is a guy with the 10-cent hat. And, and I don't mean that that he's an idiot off the field. No. He's a guy who, when things go bad, can't get himself out of it, can't slow himself down enough to get himself out of the bad situations. When things are going good, he's on fire. And he had a great spring for the Blue Jays. I'm intrigued to see how he handles things getting out of New York, getting away from the Mets, getting a fresh start. Good kid, did a lot of really good things off the field for the Mets. So I'm rooting for him. But I think the Jays are a playoff team. I certainly think the Yankees are a playoff team. The Rays are very good. They could be a playoff team as well. So the AFC, the AL East is going to be a good division for those three teams. Unfortunately, the Red Sox are still very young, and I don't see them being very good this year. And the Baltimore Orioles are on their 100th year of a 150-year rebuilding project. It's just a sad, sorry baseball team that – you wonder if they're ever going to figure it out. Matt Harvey's going to start for them as their number two. Now, Harvey, of course, had some great moments as a Met, and you think to yourself, you know, maybe he can get that back, but that thoracic outlet syndrome robbed him of his career, and whether or not he's able to figure it out again, I hope for his sake he is. I hope for the O's sake he is, because if that's the case, he has a good year. They could trade him at the deadline. He's low cost. I'd love to see that. But I think going back to the Yankees, it's it's going to be about their health. How many games this year does Giancarlo Stanton play? How many games this year does Aaron Judge play? You know, Aaron Judge is one of those guys who went healthy. He's a top 20 player in the game. He has the opportunity to be one of the best outfielders in baseball. When healthy. However, it hasn't happened. And, and you don't know until a guy does it if he can do it all the time. So if you get 150 games out of Judge, I would expect 45 home runs, 125 RBIs. We'll see if that can possibly happen. And if Giancarlo Stanton can continue to produce when healthy. And you know he's not going to be 150 games. Stanton, if you get 110 out of him, I think you're going to feel good. First base is already an issue. Jay Bruce is going to start at first base. And I think Bruce is a perfect fit for Yankee Stadium. That short Little League porch in right field, Jay Bruce is going to hit some pop-ups that are going to go out. So I think early on that won't be an issue. And, you know, Luke Voigt dealing with knee surgery I believe yesterday was the day he had surgery, so he's out for a month or so. I think that's going to be a position to keep an eye on, and maybe the Yankees go get somebody at midseason to, to help them if Voight isn't able to get back on the field and, and do what he did last year, coming off a very good season last year, a season, frankly, I never thought he could have. Then again, it was a 60-game season, not a full season, but he was one of the best players in that short season. So 
credit where credit is due. The Mets, they've first got some business to handle, and I don't know that it'll get handled. Their star acquisition, Francisco Lindor, has put a deadline of opening day to sign a contract extension. Steve, with the Mets having a new owner, Steve Cohen, you look at their deep pockets and think, well, yes, they'll get this done. Reportedly, and this is as of yesterday, the Mets had offered Lindor a 10-year, $325 million deal, to which he has balked at, which you look at it in the economics of baseball right now, for a guy to turn down $325 million, that's some confidence, especially in a year where there's going to be five or six really good shortstops hitting free agency. Yes, the Mets want to keep Francisco Lindor. Yes, the Mets need to keep Francisco Lindor. But if he doesn't sign their contract offer, somebody else taking that money won't be the worst thing. Again, you're, you're looking to sign him because you think he's the best, but you might get a 1A, and it's not a 2 or a 3. It's a 1A. Javi Baez, Trevor Story, likely to be free agents, even Corey Seager of the Dodgers. So there's going to be shortstop talent out there maybe for significant, significantly less money in years. But Lindor is going to be the guy that the Mets want. He reportedly wants a 12-year, $385 million deal. So we'll see where this goes from here. But that's the first order of business in the next two days for the Mets organization. And if they go into opening day without that contract signed, He's going to be a free agent. Michael Conforto, their homegrown right fielder, who is a 30-home run guy, is likely to hit free agency after this year as well because contract extension with him has gone nowhere. Scott Boris is his agent. He's not somebody who enjoys these sort of things. So that's another problem. Noah Syndergaard, who I previously mentioned, had gone through Tommy John surgery last year. Likely back in June, if all goes well, he's a free agent after this year. So even though the Mets' new owner has all these deep pockets, there's a lot of financial questions for this team. The rotation, the injury to Carlos Carrasco, tore a hamstring, he's going to miss a month and a half of the season. That's a big injury because he was slotted to be a two or a three behind Jake DeGrom and probably Marcus Stroman. Stroman comes back after opting out last year. Good pitcher. I think someone who needs to have a pretty good year if this Mets team is going to do what they, what many think they can. I think that Stroman needs to be solid because if you look after those three, Carrasco, Stroman, and DeGrom, until Syndergaard gets back, David Peterson, who did some good things as a rookie last year, and Joey Lucchese, who comes over from the Padres, a bit of a funky delivery and not as great as stuff, that rotation is beatable beyond the first couple. Obviously, DeGrom, I think the best pitcher in baseball, if not he or Garrett Cole are, gives them a great chance every fifth day. But this is a team who is going to score runs. Pete Alonso coming back from the short season last year, had a great spring, didn't have a good year last year. Of course, had 52, 53 home runs in his rookie year. So we'll see where it goes with Alonzo. The second base position is going to be 
better this year. Jeff McNeil playing second, not Robinson Cano. Cano pretty much a land anchor at this point. Shortstop improved defensively, of course, with Lindor. Third base is J.D. Davis, who's not very good defensively. The problem with this Mets team is the outfield defense is going to be subpar yet again. Conforto's okay and right. You can live with that. But Brandon Nimmo in center is is a, a negative. He is not a good defensive center fielder whatsoever. Balls that should be outs land as doubles with him in the outfield. Dom Smith, who's a very good hitter and a very good first baseman, will be playing left field. He's not a very good left fielder. So, again, that's another negative defensive position. It's a, a situation where this team is kind of – going to be the same type of team as they were last year. You have questions about the rotation, the depth of the rotation. You think you're going to score runs. You know your defense isn't good enough. The bullpen becomes either the the situation that makes this team or doesn't. They've add, added some names to it. You've still got guys like Jerry's Familia and Dallin Batanzas who are long past their prime. They're, they'll go out there and give up runs and walk hitters, but every now and then will look like their old selves. You've got guys like Aaron Loop coming in to try and help things out. And at the end, Edwin Diaz is as big a mystery as there is in Major League Baseball. This guy's stuff is unbelievable. And actually, last year he had a very good year closing for the Mets. He did give up some home runs that obviously cost the Mets games. But overall, he was very solid see what kind of year he has this year going forward. But I would expect the Mets to contend for a wild card. I think the NL East is the Braves' division to lose. The Braves are a great team. But I think it's going to come down to injuries and how things play out for the Mets. And what I mean by that more than anything is, does Noah Syndergaard act like a midseason acquisition when he comes in is he a guy who's going to come in and pitch like he did a couple years ago when he looked like he was a future dominant number one if that's the case then the Mets pitching staff is more than enough to get them where they want to go so yesterday there was big news in western New York the Pagulas decided to sign a naming rights deal for the Bills stadium and the name of the stadium is Highmark Stadium. Doesn't sound bad. Now, do we know what Highmark is? Highmark is the name of the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Western New York. Highmark, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Western New York. Health insurance. Here we live in a country right now dealing with a pandemic. Economically, our country is a disaster. Medically, this year has been challenged like no other. Insurance rates, health insurance rates continue to go up. Yet here we are in Western New York with two stadiums now named after our Blue Cross Blue Shield businesses. These companies have so much extra money that they decide naming rights for their stadiums are a good way to go about getting more customers. Which, if you're Blue Cross Blue Shield, do you really need to... Advertise, Of course, here in Rochester, we have Blue Cross Arena. Now, I love this. When Blue Cross Arena decided to pay a lot of money for the rights, I should say Blue Cross of 
Rochester decided to pay a lot of money for the rights to Blue Cross Arena. They said the money doesn't come out of the budget that deals with pricing. It comes out of a separate budget. Oh, but all of those budgets go into the main thing. So Blue Cross Blue Shield now has two naming right deals that they're spending a bunch of money on while milking customers out of huge amounts of money for their monthly benefits and trying to deny coverage whatever they can. It's just not a good look, in my opinion, to have an insurance, a health insurance company be the title sponsor. The Pagulas, they got their money. They don't care how this looks. But once again, they're tone deaf because they are complicit in this. Now, you could be angry at Highmark, Blue Cross Blue Shield for spending money to do this. And I am because, again, that's money that they're taking from their customers and they're already priced to where many people can't afford health insurance. And I don't mean to go on a political thing, and I'm not making this political. I just think this is something that, that's short-sighted. But the Pagulas, they're taking their money, and they don't care. And, and I think that's very short-sighted, again, by the Pagulas to take that money from these people. The Pagulas have a way of not being able to read the room. They don't understand how things look to the outside. And, you know, very proud of this deal, very happy. Yeah, of course you're happy. You're getting your money. It's just a bad look. And and as we go through this time, I'm sure there's going to be more and more criticism of the Bills and Highmark, Blue Cross, Blue Shield of Western New York. Highmark Stadium it is. I'll continue to call it the Ralph. I'm not going to call it Highmark Stadium. It'll be the Ralph going forward. And the Pagulas, once again, in my opinion, in the court of public opinion, another bad move by the Pagulas. The NFL draft got a lot more interesting this weekend. And the Miami Dolphins are the team we have to thank for that. The Dolphins had been rewarded with the third pick based on the Laramie Tunsil to Houston trade a couple years ago. Of course, Houston had an awful season last year. So the Dolphins end up with a third overall pick. And the 49ers decided they wanted to trade up to get a quarterback. So the 49ers trade up from 12 to get to the third pick. So they're going to pick a quarterback. The Dolphins then took one of the picks they acquired in that one, traded up from 12 to 6 with the Eagles. The Eagles trade back. So the Dolphins now are at 6. They've got some draft capital still left from moving back. A a very smart move by Miami. They are going to run it back with Tua Tonga-Viola. They're going to see what Tua has and try to surround him with some talent to hopefully – get them to a point where they can compete with Tua. And I, I think it's a very, very good move. Now, you look at the draft, the one thing we know for certain, Trevor Lawrence is going to the Jags number one overall. He's going to be the first pick in the draft. The Jets pick two, word on the street seems to be that Zach Wilson, the BYU quarterback, is going to be their guy. question I have is, what do the Jets do with Sam Darnold? You're not going to get much for him. Maybe a third-round pick. Maybe. Is that worth moving on? Because I I personally 
think the Jets could be a better team by sticking with Sam Darnold, trading out of the two, getting a boatload of draft capital, and building around either Sam or the quarterback you're going to draft next year if Sam yet once again shows he's not the guy. I think that's a quicker fix for the franchise than it is to bring in a guy who started one year at BYU. And, it, it, again, apparently his pro day was great. You know, Ed, one of the greatest pro days of all time, Jamarcus Russell. How did he turn out? Again, it's an unfair comparison for Zach Wilson to say he's going to be Jamarcus Russell. And, and I'm not saying that. I just think this is something that bad teams do. They continue to make the same mistake over and over again and don't build around the guy that they're going to draft. They haven't built around Sam Darnold. They traded up to get him and spent a lot of capital to get him, yet never put the pieces in place around him to allow him to be successful. And so this is a, a, a thing that bad teams do. But I would expect Zach Wilson to go two to the Jets or to somebody else. That leaves San Francisco at three with either Justin Fields or Mac Jones, the Alabama quarterback. They're going to take one of them because you don't trade up and give up what they gave up unless you're taking a quarterback. So that's three quarterbacks. And then you look at Atlanta. Matt Ryan in the last year of his deal, they would like to move on from Ryan after this year or maybe midseason. I wouldn't be surprised if Fields, Mac Jones, or maybe even Trey Lance, the North Dakota kid, one of those guys goes to Atlanta. And, and what this really does to me, it means that the Bengals at five and the Dolphins now at six are in great position because neither of those teams are going to draft a quarterback this year because they both drafted them last year. So that means that the Bengals, if they want to protect Joey Burrow, they end up taking offensive tackle Panay Suell, kid from Oregon, who sat out last year but is one of the best tackle prospects to come in in a long time. They could take Jamar Chase, the wide receiver from LSU, another kid who sat out but crazy potential going into this year. Or maybe even the tight end from Florida, Kyle Pitts, who everyone looks at as a generational talent at that position. One of those three guys will make Joey Burrow better. And, and you look at Miami, they picked up draft capital sliding back down. They spent some of it to slide back up. But they still get one of the two or three best players in the draft for their roster. So they weren't going to take a quarterback anyway. So this draft is going to work out exceedingly well for those two teams, for the Bengals and the Dolphins, teams that weren't going to draft quarterbacks they now are in a perfect position to to get this draft right. The last thing I wanted to talk about this week is something the NHL did to a referee. I want you to listen to the soundbite that we're going to play. Tim Peels is a referee. He was mic'd up during the game. I want you to listen to the soundbite, and then I'm going to go through it from the eyes of a referee. Here's Tim Peels in a game. Now, think about what he said. 
There wasn't much there, but I wanted to get one early on. He got fired for this. He was going to retire at the year's end anyway, but he got fired for saying that. And people are looking at He's fixing games. He's cheating. Through the eyes of, the ref, of a referee, he's not cheating. He's managing the game. And it happens in every sport, at every level, all the time. If you're not good, you're not smart enough to manage the game. You want to make a call on a player who deserves it always. First up, referee 101 is you call the obvious, right? We all know that. <coughs> Excuse me. You call the obvious. That's referee 101. But the philosophy of refereeing is you want to call the same thing for both teams. Well, sometimes the same thing for both teams isn't there. So you're calling something on one team, but you can't call the same thing on the other team because it's not there. So now, you know, basketball, the foul count, hockey, the penalty count, football, the penalty count, they're mismatched. So what do you do? You look for a penalty to call or a foul to call on the other team to even things up, to keep the perception that the game is being called evenly. There's not much there, but I wanted to get one. There's still enough there to call a penalty. He said it. There's not much there, but it's still a penalty. So it wasn't a bad call. It may have been a weaker call than he wanted, but at the same time, it wasn't like he called something that wasn't there. He was managing the game. He was talking about managing the game. And anybody who knows refereeing or the game itself will look at this and say, yeah, I understand what he was saying. But the general public who thinks referees cheat all the time anyway have no idea what they're doing. They're the ones who are overreacting to this. And, and the NHL gave in to that part of their fan base, decided, yes, that part of the fan base is what's driving us. So we're going to make it. So we're going to fire this guy. Shouldn't have been fired. As a matter of fact, he did what a lot of other referees and a lot of other sports do all the time. It's called managing the game. He just got caught talking about it. It happens. It's smart. It's good officiating. Unfortunately, Tim Peel didn't get a chance to explain. And the NHL is too stupid and too, too image conscious to explain for him. It's just a bad look all the way around. And, and granted, it's a bad look for Tim Peel because he got caught on a hot mic saying it. But the reality is it's a worse look for the NHL because they once again make a decision that the public thinks is a great decision, but the people within the game know that it's a bad decision. And once again, Gary Bettman, bad decisions are what Gary Bettman does best. So Tim Peel's fired for doing the right thing in my opinion, managing the game. That's the podcast for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. If you listen live, thank you for tuning in. If you're catching us on one of our many platforms, thank you also. Spread the word. We're here every Tuesday live on YouTube. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.